Welcome to the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gimmage, and I've got a special guest with me today, Lloyd Knight. He's the principal at Charter School USA, the Thomas Carr Howe Community High School. He's been all over the country from North Carolina, Indianapolis, Chicago, um, doing amazing, great things. And as I just found out, you've got a Black Educator podcast. Lloyd, can you tell me about that? Um, because I've again, I've been searching and looking at, at different um, avenues for educators to um, gain insight into what's going on in, in our industry. And you know, I see a lack of representation, and I see a, a lack of um, things that are out there that are non-formal. Everything is so serious in education. So, talk to me about the Black Educator Podcast and um, what you've got going on over there. So, uh, Trey, thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast today. I'm so excited to just chop it up with you about education in general. And you're right, man. Education is far too formal too many times. And I'm looking forward to just kicking back and just talking some big game with a fellow educator like yourself. Yes, um, Black Educator Podcast was launched because I'm personally going to be on a panel at the ASU GSB conference discussing a return to black schools, which I also believe is a return to community schools. Um, Black Educators Podcast, at least the first episode, was just about the idea of how is it that we have so few black male educators within our country when black people in general make up such a significant portion of our population and are the vast majority within our inner cities. So, 2% 2% of all educators in this country are African-American males. Mm. And that is a disparaging, it, it makes me feel terrible for inner city communities because so many times our students are being taught by people who don't look like them, understand them, carry their swag a certain way. They don't connect with them. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't great white teachers because obviously there are because there are so many students who are making it out of terrible situations through education. Mm -hmm. What I am saying is that I have a problem with a system in which we have the research that says that African-American students do better when they're taught by African-Americans and we got 2% of all educators being Mm -hmm. African-American males. So it seems like we, we, we have been engulfed in a system in which we have students who are not being fed by the people that will feed them the best because of whatever reason our education management organization, whether it's a district, whether it's charter schools, whether it's turnaround schools, is not seeking out people of the community. We want to go find people, the best people from all over the country when you may not realize that Somebody could be just as effective. Someone could be just as effective from within the community if given the proper training. Mm. Not only could they be just as effective, but could be even more effective than the person that you think is an expert because they are going to be more willing to connect with the people that they're going to be teaching. And that's what the the overall theme of the Black Educators uh, podcast is pretty much about. Yeah, well, and, and that's that's real because I think a, a lot of times, you know, teaching goes beyond technique. 
Um, and there's, you know, several articles about it. I know I first heard it from Parker J. Palmer. He talks about the heart of a teacher. But it, it goes past technique. And I noticed in, in your article, the, the letter to yourself as a first-year teacher, um, what stood out to me, you said that college prepared you for a lot of things, to be a better husband, be a better father, be a better everything. But it didn't teach you how to do classroom management and no. planning. Um, so <laughs> that's, that, that makes sense. And, and again, for yourself, being in um, areas like Chicago, I know you've been, been in some of the tough neighborhoods, Indianapolis, Wake County schools. Um, how, how did you build that skill and um, how much of it was technique and how much of it was who you are as a person? Awesome. I, I can honestly tell you that the moment I started teaching in true inner city schools, whatever I was as a person really didn't matter at all. <laughs> mm. Mm. My, uh, my first experience in true inner city schools was um, I was the fifth teacher in the first month at Johnson School of Excellence and um, Academy for Urban School Leadership School mm. in um, Chicago Public Schools. Uh, it was, they were in the second year of their turnaround, and I was surrounded by the most amazing educators I have ever seen. I mean, they, they these people, the way they spoke to the kids, the way they taught, the energy they had, it was just remarkable. And I, and, I, and, I, and I would just watch them teach, and I would just be so amazed at them. Problem was, is though I was the fifth teacher in the first, in the first month, um, I stayed for the full year, but I was ill-prepared to oh, deal. wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, you said the fifth teacher in the first month. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you, there was four teachers teaching your class before yeah. you got there. So four yeah. teachers quit before you got there? Yes. Wow. They quit. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they quit. I thought you, wow. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, look, we got time as a podcast, baby. So, so, okay. basically, so basically, one of the teachers... She went to the school, had lunch with the cl- with the class, got in the car, never came back. Mm. Another lady, uh, she mm. suddenly fell deeply in love with her boyfriend and quit. I think I think I, I don't. I'm never going to say anything disparaging about my students in in the North Lawndale neighborhood on the West Side. But anyone from the Shaw really understands, like the drugs, yeah, and poverty, generational poverty, have absolutely decimated the West Side. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, I learned so much then. And I think like when I, when I, when I went to Chicago or I went to, um, when I came to Indianapolis, you know, I, I would ask people about how many kids per classroom consistently are coming in ready to destroy everything that you have planned for that day. Mm. And they say, you know, each class probably has like three or four kids like that, you know. And when I was in Chicago, when I was on the south far south side of Chicago in the Alco right. Gardens Housing Project, Housing, Housing Authority in Chicago, maybe like five or six per class, you know, Wiggly, whatever. Man, I had twenty nine kids, and twenty seven of them kids would have ate my lunch every single day if I looked. <laughs> uh, but it was a trial by fire, man. There was a lot of tears. I'm yeah. so grateful to Alice Henry, my principal during the time, and Troy LaRavier, who eventually ran for gov- ran for mayor in Chicago. I'm grateful for them for being patient for me and let me feed my family. I was awful that year. Mm. But, but they allowed me to grow. They allowed me to learn. I had some amazing coaches from AUSL who came in, did real-time coaching. A lot of teach-like-a-champion strategies. I learned about narration. I learned about filling the air with positivity so that they didn't fill the air with negativity. Wow. I learned about acknowledging every student 
every 15 minutes in some way, whether it's a touch, eye contact, or positive framing of directions. And when I closed the year, I felt really strong, but my but my my scores weren't very good, so I was rightfully fired. At the end of the year. <laughs> um, but I knew that if I went anywhere else after that, I was going to tear it up. Yeah. And uh, I had a chance to go to CICS Lloyd Bond, and you know, pretty much the rest is history. So, mm-hmm. so, so talk me through real quick your your education journey with that, because I see you you've okay. been in North Carolina, um, you've been in Chicago, you're in Indianapolis now. How, Tell me about your journey a little bit. So when I left Johnson School of Excellence, I went over to uh, CICS Lloyd Bond, like I said, far south side of Chicago, all Guild Gardens. Um, the year that I left the school, um, the uh, Chicago Tribune um, rated it as the number two most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. Um, had mm. a population of about 4,000 people with about 600 murders. I mm. think here's something just outrageous. Mm. Uh, but um, I love the gardens. Um, I'm so grateful for all the people who are there. Um, I started off there as a fifth and sixth grade teacher. Um, had really good scores in a school that didn't have very good scores. Uh, Charter School USA took over the school from Edison Learning after that year. And then I became a curriculum coordinator. And then I became an assistant principal the following year. In the last semester of grad school, in my last class, I was offered, uh, as for administration, I was offered principalship of the school. Um, I became principal of CICS Lloyd Bond, and um, two months into my school year, <laughs> we actually um, <laughs> we were informed that we were on the close list. Mm. We were close at the end of the year if we didn't perform. So um, from there, uh, over the course of the rest of that semester, you know, we worked hard. A lot of uh, curriculum stuff that you know I, I can dive into, but. We basically um, went from the closed list in two years to the number four school in the city of Chicago. Wow. wow. And one elementary school on the south side of Chicago, um, according to Chicago Magazine. So, wow. Uh, I had an amazing, I've always been lucky to have an absolute amazing team always around me. Um, and I've been blessed to have them in my life. Uh, over at CICS Lloyd Bond, I mean, I had a husband wife combo with the Kirks, I had Miss McDermott. Wheatley, Zenas, Barnes, like I can go Holgate, Johnson, Somerville, Atkins, Cruzy. I mean, I've always been blessed to be around really great educators, and we did a lot of great things there. We we led our network of CSUSA and grow for six consecutive data cycles. Um, But at the end of those two years, I went ahead and went to North Carolina and was their state superintendent, and I helped them open six schools and eight buildings over the course of four months. As a lead principal, I served three different boards, but I don't enjoy um, upper-level administrative work. I wanted to be with the kids, so I felt like the Lord called me to come to Indianapolis. And um, now that I'm here, we're on the precipice. uh, We're the longest failing school in the um, Mm. state of Indiana. Uh, NPR uh, was embedded in our school for uh, three days, um, and they did a story on our school and myself and the turnaround we've done. Um, and uh, right now, we got a lot of a lot of pull. Tomorrow, we're going to um, go before the state board of education to see if our school can become a K through twelve charter school. Mm. So excited mm. about that! 
you were know? you were, so you weren't a part of starting that charter school and, and I'm interested because I really like charter schools myself I I, I worked with a, a k-12 charter school just got approved for um, 9 through 12 this past summer in this world charter school so they've been in existence for about five six years I go down there a couple of days a week and do guidance and behavior work with them um, amazing school one of the only successful world charter schools in South Carolina, or at least the area. Talk to me some about your experience with charter, because it gets a bad rap in a lot of lanes, but to, to be in a charter school and see the opportunities for kids that are in lack is, is, is amazing um, to me. So talk to me about your experience with charter. So um, I am 100% a school choice advocate, and most school choice advocates don't look like me. And, you know, I think, I. I, I was actually talking to someone the other day about this and about how, you know, a lot of times people vote against their interests. You know, mm. they allow other people to tell them that the boogeyman's behind the door so that they won't go there. So I'm not anti-district. Like, I love public schools. I just think that, like, when we're talking about when education is not going well in an area, I think competition works. Mm. And what I mean when I say that is, is that – if you're not willing to do everything necessary to make sure the stakeholders of your um, school community get the absolute best of everything at all times, then you're failing them. Yeah. When when proponents again, when people who are anti-charter talk about the money that's taken from districts because a charter school has been built, I scoff at that. And the reason why I do that is because, you know, I'm sensitive to their needs. But what I'm saying is, instead of you saying, hey, these charters done took my kids, what I'd like to hear is, man, let's go. Mm. Let's, let's compete. Mm. Let's fight. Let's, let's see who's going to truly provide the better education for the students of this community. Because the students and the parents deserve the opportunity to make the choice. Not you and your building that's empty because you have not done what's necessary to fill it. Yeah. You don't get to be upset with me because my charter school has found a way to attract people to my school because I'm going to do everything necessary to go get those students. Right. Long failing public schools. My, my thing is it, and I'm a part of one now, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're a state turnaround school, 13 consecutive years. Wow. I think that's unfair. I don't think public school, charter schools are under such in, 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 in starch scrutiny. Yeah. If we don't perform, we will be closed in the next five years. Mm -hmm. No question about it. We will close and it won't be a tear shed because we came as a community saying we're ready to compete and be great. And if we're not willing to do that, then of course we don't deserve to continue to, um, to be there. So yeah. That's how I feel about um, school choice. Um, I understand how people feel about, like, you know, the obvious things. You know, they, they, they feel like, you know, a for-profit management company is there not to educate students but to make money. What I will say is this, you know, if, if a management organization, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, has found a way to take the same resources that were given to a district and spend them in a strategic way to maximize those dollars for the children of their building and the children and the parents and the stakeholders of that community, do not have an issue with that. Why not? And why not? Because at the end of the day, and this is where I talk about people voting against their interests, you're not going to tell somebody who lives in the inner city that they shouldn't go to a school 
that's good for their child because of some political thing. They don't mm-hmm. care about that. They care about the education of their child and the, maximize the opportunity for that student to be able to do great things in the future for their life. So that's why I'm a um, pro-choice advocate. Yeah. And, and so you've mentioned a couple of times being a turnaround school and, and, you know, I've seen a lot of turnaround specialists. What does that mean? What's a, what's a turnaround school? What's a turnaround specialist? How do you turn the school around and what are you turning them around from? Excellent. Um, so I, I, people, I have heard people describe me recently as probably one of the few true turnaround specialists in the country. And I think part of that is because there's a lot of people saying they turn schools around, but they don't really turn schools around to sustained success. So from my perspective, what is a turnaround school? A turnaround school is a school that some authorizer has determined if they do not succeed, they will close. When I came to T.C. Howe in Indianapolis, I was pretty much given a mandate by my superintendent and the CEO that night, if you don't turn this around, we're going to close the school, right? If uh, when I was at CICS Lloyd Bond, Chicago Public Schools said, if you don't turn the school around, we're going to close. So yeah. basically, a turnaround school is your back's on the wall, and now you have hopefully, hopefully, some education expert who's going to be able to step forward and say, I have a plan to make this school a viable place where districts and many education experts have already decided is not. Hmm. Uh, long, long failing schools according to state accountability, and schools are failing for multiple reasons, you know. State test scores um, in Chicago public schools, they had the five essentials talking about like survey data, um, you know, offering CTE, CCR courses, graduation rates, the number of students who go to a four year university. Those are all uh, traditional ways to measure the success of a school. Um, What I would say is, is that many times people who are in charge of schools that are failing, they're not looking at the small sweat, the stuff, small stuff matrices measures to really truly find success. And I'm a person that like, I always find a way to assemble a team and put people on the right bus to be able to make the magic happen, which is like, you know, saving schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What, what are some of, you know, so you've turned around how many schools or you've been a part of, you've been a principal in, in a situation around how many? So I've turned around as principal living in a community to schools. Hmm. I have turned around. I turned around a school in Louisiana three years ago. Wow. Uh, it was on the cusp of closing, and I was going back and forth between Chicago and Louisiana. Wow. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I helped turn around school in Tallahassee, Florida this year. I went down for a week, redid their school-wide discipline policy, Talk to the uh, assistant principal. Talk to the principal. Set forth a plan and new expectations. Um, I've done it in Jacksonville, Florida, as well. In which, uh, when I was, uh, I think I was an uh, when I was an assistant principal, I was told to go down to a school. So typically, with Charter School USA, if a, if a school has turned taken a real negative turn, they really need some fresh eyes on the situation. I've been asked to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Occasion to ch- check it out for them. Okay. Well, now, where does your heart for all this come in? Because this isn't easy work, going back and forth to Chicago, working with schools that are failing. I mean, so, some folks, and, and, you know, we're in a teacher shortage, so it's hard to find people to come in anyway. Um, teachers are getting burnt out, you know, especially at this point in the year, teachers are ready to go home. How, yeah. how, how do you find this hard to continue to go to schools that are struggling 
um, or schools that are failing in, in putting all your effort, all your might to turn that school around? I think first and foremost, I'm going to give glory to God, um, you know, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, man. You know, um, I'm not the best Christian in the world, but I truly believe God has placed me in different places in the world and put me through things so that I could be a, a live a testimony of education. Um, yes, sir. City. So um, I would say it started probably when I was five, when my birth mother died mm -hmm. as a result of um, having my, um, my younger brother, who I love very much. Um, and then at 12, my father died of a heart attack, um, in the room next to me. Before that, he had, uh, remarried my Korean stepmother who barely spoke the language. So, um, as a black man, 12 years old, black boy, 12 years old, having to be a man at the time, I'm so blessed to have my, um, my Korean mother, um, mm. to be able to like watch over me and, and keep me safe and stuff like that. But, um, school was my sanctuary, man. Like, I didn't have any male figures in my life that looked like me. Wow. I didn't have anybody um, who could understand, I think, the pain I was truly in during that time. And when I went to school, my teachers took care of me. You know, they loved me. And they came mm. to me at a time where, you know, they, they didn't have to, but they did it because it was their job. It was their, it was their life. So um, I want to be that blessing to other people. And I think that's part I, – I, I haven't realized that. I think probably – in the last like four or five years that I think, I think like that's where it comes from because I love my job so much and I'm driven by it so much because I, I just want to be that person. Yeah. That connect the dots for another person. So the next Lloyd Knight can step forward and like help lead our culture, help lead our people, help lead yeah. education. Um, I'd like to go down as probably one of the greatest educators who ever lived at the end of the day. And I think my part of my drive for that is not let is less selfish about me and more about my daughters. I have two beautiful daughters. Um, and I want them to know like the same way I was proud of my father who was a Vietnam war veteran and got his masters before passing and someone who was super into education that, you know, I want them to know like their father was a great educator and that, you know, I got to take things to the next level too, you know, mm. uh, not to digress too far, but, you know, we're only about 60 years removed from the civil rights movement. Yeah. Like 50 years removed from the civil rights movement. So like every generation that, that comes after us, I, I, I want to have a hand in making sure that our people get to the next level so that we can be able to move freely through this country and do everything we, we, we need to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that's, that's the realist. And I think that that's a, a great point. I think it's lost in a lot of situations, you know, and, and, um, I, myself, my grandfather grew up picking cotton. My father, um, is a, is a judge in Indiana and those, that's, that's a huge gap. You know, that's a, that's, that's crazy. Like that's my grandfather picked cotton for a hundred pounds, a dollar, a pound, or whatever the case was. So to go in one generation from picking cotton to the, the highest position that you can hold in the county, that shows me a different perspective of the world. But what I've, I've realized as I've gone on to have a scholarship to play football in college and um, be a successful public speaker and have my own business and stuff is that everybody doesn't have that opportunity. 
And the, the, the kids that are in these schools, they don't get to choose what they were born into. I, I didn't get to choose my dad. I didn't get to choose my father. And, and we have a family Bible that goes back to the 1830s. Most people that look like you or me can't go back to, to 1930, you know, or can't go back past their grandfather because that history is lost. The history is forgotten. The history is gone. Um, so, so to see that and understand that, that that student in Chicago, that student in this place right now, they don't even know what they're missing and they've never had the opportunity to see anything better. So even though I'm, I'm in here and I'm, I'm willing to struggle or I'm willing to go through the struggle to help you understand the value of this opportunity. And I think you have an article, I'm trying to pull it up a little bit, um, Oh. Go ahead, go ahead, check them out. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's on LinkedIn, Lloyd Knight on LinkedIn. Um, you can find them there. Um, but you, you have an article, Pushing Students Through Poverty to Success. But I don't, I don't know if this was you or something else that I saw. Um, you Talk about how you help students understand the value of a quality mm-hmm. education when they've never seen it represented before. I think uh, how we interact with students every day can paint a picture of value of education that they will not necessarily see anywhere else. So like, I once met a principal who said, every day I wear a suit because I don't know if our students are seeing young black people in suits outside of this building. Yeah. Right? Like when you have those graduations and you and like we all you have like a graduation or moving up ceremony and you tell the kids to dress up and everybody got got like really nice jeans. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what like that's the sort of thing that gives me pause to remember that wow, right? So like I'm wondering if you're gonna be into education, but you haven't even learned the basic building blocks of mm. what an educator should look like, sound like, think mm. like, right? So within our school, every day, we push students to give their all on every single thing they do, right? We believe in excellence. So like, we don't do anything unless we're going to be excellent, right? So because of that, when a student tells us what they want to do or what they're going to do in life and different things, we don't always say be, be, go to college and just major in something, right? We have CTE courses here like welding and culinary arts and stuff. And we don't tell them, hey, man, you can be a cook. We'd be like, yo, you could be a chef. Yeah. Or you can your own cook and catering business. So, yeah. like, I went and so when I wanted to hire a culinary teacher, I had a hard time, right? Because I wanted to find a certain fit for my culinary class. Hmm. Find it. So, what I do, I went, to a, I went to a senior banquet and I meet this wonderful lady who's catering the business. I say, hey, would you be willing to come to our school two hours a day if I paid you and show our students how to cook? Wow. Yes. So like finding conventional ways to put professionals in front of our students, or it's, I got kids who want to be dancers. So what did I do? I I, I asked my athletic director, go find me the best dance team in the city. They came in and I said, hey, would you be interested in starting a dance club here the first two periods of the day so that our students who are super passionate about dance can get a chance, right? So we don't just do educators who are like math, reading, science, social studies. I'm looking for people of color. I'm looking for people of different genders. I'm looking for different people just in general 
to be in front of our students because you never know which adult could be that one person that can truly change the life of that student just by being present. And I think that's the most important aspect of like the main, my main true passion, I think, which is like mentoring. Yeah. I think mentoring apart from education is just so important because I know for a fact, there's no way I would be where I am in my life if I didn't have amazing mentors around me. Mm. That, that you, you've got so much powerful stuff. I almost forgot I was in the interview right now. I got to ask another, another question. Uh, I already told you this spot to be the best show, man. <laughs> I already told you that. Like, we about to get it in. You know you're what I'm right. saying? You're right. You're right. And, you know, it's interesting um, bringing up CTE, you know, career and technology education. I, I graduated high school in 2011, and, and I, we didn't have career and tech. And if we did, it was for the other kids. You know, so so how did you, how were you able to embed career and tech inside of your day-to-day curriculum? How do you find that time? There's not enough time in the day already, you know, for for students to learn their, whatever they need to learn with distractions and all that. You know, how do you find the time to have a cooking class or a dance class and stuff like that? So what I did was, um, last year we had seven periods. And this is where, like, the difference between, we can go into the difference between a district and a charter and all that stuff too. Because when I looked at all the different high schools in our city, I was like, man, everybody has something they're specializing in. Whether it's Purdue Polytech, where if you graduate from Purdue Polytech High School, you get automatic acceptance to Purdue. Wow. I know you want to go back to school now, don't you? <laughs> uh, Addicts High School has like medical technology. Broad yeah. Ripple had the fine arts. You know, Emmerick Manuel, our sister school, had lots of CTE stuff, college career readiness stuff. So I'm looking at my school and I'm like, yo, why am I expecting everybody to come here if I'm not offering nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So me and some very close people on my team, we came together and we was like, yo, what if we started the day with after school programs? What if I added a day? What if I shortened my periods, added one to Mm -hmm. the front end of my day? And for the first two periods every day, instead of you going right to class and us expecting you to learn after all that mess that's been on you all weekend and stuff, yeah, you get to see the person that you love so much that you stay after school to be with as soon as you walk in the door. We're a uniform school. Now you can come in without uniforms on, mm. right? Now you get to go straight to football practice to start the day, straight to basketball practice to start the day, straight to dance practice to start the day, straight to culinary practice to start the day, straight to student council part of the day, and it's for high school credit. Mm. So that's where the academy model was built. Um, The basis of it came from Ron Clark. I went to Ron Clark Academy, and I saw the different houses, right? But, you know, honestly, I thought that Hogwarts stuff was kind of corny, right? (laughs) I mean, be honest with you. So I was like, all right, well, we're going to do – We'll have an athletics academy where everybody in that academy, 200 kids per day are going to fill the gym and they're going to do strength, conditioning, weights, and they're going to have practice with their coaches. Oh, workouts with their coaches. Um, Arts academy, culinary arts, choir, dance. They're going to be able, first thing every morning, to go right into the thing they love for high school credit. Service learning is some of our extra classes plus student council plus like community service. Um, And then... Um, lastly, JROTC, our JROTC is number one in the city based on 
recent expect, um, inspections. So all year, they've been competing in academic wars, um, cultural wars. Uh, we have this thing called Read Like a Scholar. We had a library full of books of that no one ever read. Yeah. I took those books, put them in the hallway. Now all students have to have a book with them at all times. <laughs> they have to read them. Uh, there's a competition about how many books you've read and book reports you've done. Um, and all that culminates in a monthly house war. So like last month, Black History Month, we did step, a step contest. We've done flag football. We've done spelling bee. So, and then we keep the points in the house that wins at the end of the year, we're going to send all of them to King's Island. Mm. Uh, so what I do is, is, you know, yeah, so it sounds pretty, pretty cool, right? Yeah. So like, I, I think I can compete. So what ends up happening is, I uh, exceed my enrollment target by 80 students, and we have the highest retention of students we've ever had. We've only lost about 20 students net this school year. So in a very, very transient community in Indianapolis. Yeah, yeah. So, so man, there's I'm, there's a lot of questions I've got about that one. I'm not going to go too far on now. But the, the, the structure you have to have in place to make that work, what – how do you organize this, you know, and, and where, yeah, where does this start to organize these academies? Again, especially with the charter school, you know, charter school, you, a lot of times you got to start from scratch. I'm not, I'm not too yeah. familiar with Charter USA, but you start from scratch with, with yeah. a lot of things and got to build these yourself. How do you build that structure and organization to help it flow so smooth? Trey, I'm so glad you asked that because uh, I have a saying that I brought with me when I came here. And that is, there's a process document for everything, right? So I want, every, when, I, when I structure out my building, when the first day I came here, I started asking questions. How do we do this? How do we do that? When people were just verbally telling me that, I was like, let's stop right there. I want a process document yeah. for how do I request a check? How do I get a field trip? How do I run academies? What do academies look like? Who's gonna be the coaches? I'm so detailed when it comes to those things that I, and I showed my team my level of detail and process documents. When you create a process document for something like dismissal, it's impossible for you to not be able to hold people accountable because it's right there. It's on the paper. You were supposed to stand right here. You agreed that you were supposed to sit right here. You missed that, so now you can suffer the consequence of what that brings. But when everything is verbal, when everything is like, you know, up in the air and wishy-washy, you never you, you should never expect anything but exactly that, chaos. <laughs> and I'm not a person who, who thrives in chaos, especially in a turnaround model where, remember this, every school I've worked at, with the exception of the year I was superintendent, was a turnaround school. So if we ain't tight, this ain't like some suburban school yeah. where like, yeah. we ain't tight. The kids are walking out the classroom, kicking it in the hallway like, yo, we ain't having school today. Y'all ain't got it together. Holler me tomorrow. Mm. And we can't allow that to happen. So we got to be three, two, three, four, five, six times as tight as what the kids expect because yeah. we can't hold them accountable if we're not willing to hold each other accountable. And the best way to do that is through process documents. So I got a process document for everything. 
Mm. And, and, and I, I love that. I'm doing the same thing in my business and, and providing that to the schools that I'm working with. And there, there has to be a step-by-step, whether it's, you know, kids taking online classes, that facilitator in the classroom, how are you checking in with students? How are you hiring? What do these protocols look like? And I think um, a lot of times that, again, in, in, in this conversation, um, I see in charter school, what charters have helped me realize is that you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit. And, and, and even on another tip, I think a lot of um, teachers don't have an entrepreneurial spirit. And I know that I'm, I'm putting a lot of folks in a box there, but um, they need the structure. But hold on, here's the, here's the thing though. <clears throat> I think everybody walks into a classroom with either one or two ideas. Either I'm going to do it the best way I was taught mm. or I'm going to do what's best for children, right? Mm. And the truth is, is that it's easier to fall into the first one if you have a top-down model that says you're going to do this exactly. Gotcha. Right? Now, I'm not going to act like I'm not the type of person who doesn't like truly tell teachers exactly what I want from them, but they're allowed to have enough latitude and enough space yeah. to be able to innovate within their classroom, right? Mm-hmm. So the other day, I walked into a ninth grade uh, U.S. history class, and when I walk in, the entire class is set up like a model UN. Mm. They're bringing up international issues with each other, and they're having an open discussion as to what they think they should do in response as the country they're representing. Yeah. That's happening within inner city school. If I gave her a minute by minute and I said, yo, you got to do it exactly this way, does she get that innovation out of it? No. Yeah. Because there's trust there, because she follows so many of the systems and patterns that we expect already, we're able to do something like that. Mm. So I'm trying to think about how to put that in words because that's that's so good right there. So you've got the system... You've got the process, but you decide how to follow that. Pro- when you decide how to get it done. You got to make it happen still. So we've got it documented, but you how it looks in your classroom is up to you. If you don't do anything beyond our plan, you will be fine, right? Mm. But we're not going to design, design in-classrooms incentives for you. We're not going to pull your guided reading books for you. We're not going to find you your science project rubric for you. Yeah. Find those things for yourself, and we're going to help you find those things. But the nuts and bolts of what you do, the amount of time you spend on direct instruction, the amount of time you have guided reading and guided math happening in your classroom, the school-wide discipline policy, those things are non-negotiable. So we give you the foundation of, like, this is what a good school is, it's up to you to build the walls, the bathroom, the vanity and everything to truly make it yours. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, well, well, tell me, tell me this, Lord. I think we, we're about out of time for today. We might have to schedule another, another episode. Bro, we, we can do this again, man. Hey, look, look, don't, don't play with me. Cause I'm, I'm serious. I, I, won't, I won't, I won't leave you alone. So, uh, all right. What 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 do you want to leave with with a principal, a, a turnaround specialist, superintendent, guidance counselor, teacher, student, anybody in education that's listening right now? What 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 else do you have to say that you haven't already said right now? I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna cut it right straight to you. I feel like any successful any successful 
leader should read these three books. Um, and I haven't mentioned many books, but I, I feel like all principals should read these books. I think the first book you should read is Principled Centered Leadership by Stephen Covey. Hmm. And I'm not going to go too in-depth with it, but the basic foundation of it is that you, had, you will move courageously through any business or school if you stand on the principles that make you who you are. Honesty, yeah. integrity, truth, love, care. Those are things that are inside that book that if you are standing firm on your values, you can confidently lead anyone in any situation. Um, getting to Yes is another book. Getting to Yes is a book that was introduced to me by my professor, Andrea Kaufman, when I was at DePaul University. And it pretty much talks about every conversation and every interaction two people have is really a negotiation. And being able to communicate effectively with people without feeling like they're in opposition to you. Right. Understanding that sitting next to each other is far more effective than sitting across from each other in an oppositional stance. It breaks all that down, and I use that book every day. I think the last book I want to talk about as far as from a leadership perspective, I think teach like a champion is like the Bible of like urban education. Yeah. But like, um, and I'm definitely not trying to be sacrilegious when I say that, but um, leverage leadership is such an amazing book. It's like a how to manual of how to run a school. Those first two books really have nothing to do with schools. That last book will, if you read that book cover to cover, you will have a plan before you of how to manage inner city schools. That's the teach like a champion? Nah, leverage leadership. Leverage leadership, okay, okay. Yeah, those are good. Yeah, so, so, and and just to close out, you know, once again, Trey, I appreciate you having me on your podcast and everything. I would love for anybody who listens to this, um, check me out on Twitter, at Lloyd the Outlier, um, Instagram, at Lloyd the Outlier. Um, I want all educators to understand that don't think that this is truly impossible. You have an opportunity to tr- truly change the lives of your students if you're willing to give enough of yourself to make it happen. So um, I appreciate all educators, whether you're not very good or you're one of the greats. Because <laughs> you, 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 you step up every day for our students, and I appreciate you. Um, we need more black educators in this world. And I'm going to continue to screen that from the top of my lungs to everybody because um, we can't let our babies down in our inner cities. They need us, and it's time for us to stand up for our people and make sure that you know our students can get what's necessary for them to be successful in life. Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Lloyd. That you, you dropped some, some knowledge and some gems. I'm gonna have a fun time listening back to this one. It might just keep yeah. on letting the play on repeat. Um, thank you for your time, and thank you for listening. This is how we bridge the gap in education. It's challenging, it's meaningful, significant conversation on how to bridge the gap in education. So if you like this episode, please share it with someone that needs to hear it. There's educators in your neighborhood and across the country who are looking to be inspired and Lloyd Knight just ignited a flame to help you do just that. (laughs) This is the Dash Podcast. Again, thank you for listening. If you like it, share it, and we will see you next time on the Dash Podcast.